Remain standing a little while longer in honor of God's word. Matthew chapter number two. We are going to a scripture once again that we have been looking at for a few weeks now. Matthew chapter two, verse 11 says, and when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented to him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. We are returning to our series, Bounce Had a Rebound from a Really Bad Year. And today I want to talk to you about the power of the path. Nothing more important in life. Nothing that has more power than the path that you are on in life. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, would you minister by your power and your great grace? Most of all, by your anointing, which makes preaching easy, effective, and enjoyable. We give you all the praise in Jesus' name. And everybody said, you may be seated. As we have shared for several weeks now, this wisdom contained within this text, or this text contains some some serious wisdom for how to rebound from any bad year in life, particularly the bad year that we just had. And it gives us the wisdom for how to live a God kind of life. And this is wisdom from the wise men. It's, it's, we've pointed out not a Christmas text, an after Christmas text. The wise men showed up not on the day of Jesus' birth, but 12 to two years after the birth of Jesus. And in this text, the whole passage, and I've shortened it as we've gone on in the series, but there's three wisdom keys. And the first one is whatever you do in life, first thing, find Jesus, locate where God is at, where God stands. Second thing, when you find him, worship him because there's power in worship. And the third thing that we've begun to explore and we started last week is leave another way. Make sure that you are changed by the experience that you have with Jesus. And we started to break down the importance of change. And we said that God's objective in life has always been to change us. To transform us into the image of Jesus would be a better way of saying it. God is not trying to change certain things about us. God is not trying to change who he's created us to be. He's not trying to change the masterpiece that he designed you um, even before you were birthed to be. God likes you the way he, the way you are. Matter of fact, when you come out of your mother and father's womb, you come out the way God wanted you to come out because God thought that much of you. He looks at you and he said, this is a, a masterpiece for me. We are masterpiece. And, and when it comes to those kind of things and, you know, trying to change our personality and all these kinds, God, God's not necessarily looking to change those things. Because God thought that was pretty good for you, man. He's the one who designed it. I'm not going to argue with the creator about what he thought was good for me or not good for me. And so God's not looking to change those kind of things in our life. We're already original masterpieces. And by the way, don't cheapen yourself by trying to be a duplicate of something that you're not. So many people want to be like somebody else or like something they're not. And all that is is a cheapening of who you are because the reality of the matter is you are a masterpiece. Masterpiece literally means one-of-a-kind original, priceless, by the way, one-of-a-kind original. Anything that's a carbon copy of something else immediately loses value. If you have one of something, it is much more valuable than if you have 10 of that same thing. And so God's not really trying to change those kind of things about us, but he is trying to change a portion of us. And that portion of us that he's trying to change is the portion of us that is not like 
Jesus. I don't know about you, but I got little parts of me that aren't like Jesus. That's, that's the flesh, right? He wants us to be more and more like Jesus. Matter of fact, it was his motivation for creating us from the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, verse number 26, the scripture says God's speaking to himself, God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Let us, who is the us he was talking to? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Let us create man in our image. After our likeness, it has always been the purpose and the design of God for you and I to be like Jesus. When people see us, they are supposed to see Jesus. The problem is there's often parts of us, the flesh part of us, that gets in the way. I don't know about you, but there's parts of me that gets in the way a lot of times of people seeing Jesus. But it should be our objective to always Let people see the Christ in us more than they see us in every way. And John the Baptist, who was the cousin of Jesus, you remember he was the the son of Mary, Jesus' mother's sister, Elizabeth. He said this, he, he got this. He got that the objective of life as a believer, right, is is to reflect who Jesus is. When people see you, they ought to see Jesus because he said in John 3.30, he said, I must or he must become greater and I must become less. More of him, less of me. I've never regretted in my life letting Jesus lead the way. I've never regretted in my life letting him be the one that shines through me most. I've never regretted doing what Jesus would do in any given circumstances. But but letting Frank lead has caused me some regrets some of the times. Matter of fact, those are the times that I wish I should have pushed me down and, and let Jesus go out front. Not only did John the Baptist believe this. That he must become greater, we must become less. But the Apostle Paul and so many of the Bible greats understood this transformational principle that the goal of the Christian life is not to become richer. It's not to, to be healthy. I love being rich. I love being healthy, by the way. Nothing wrong with being rich and healthy. That's not the goal of the Christian life. The goal of the Christian life is to be more like Jesus. And the Apostle Paul perhaps said this best when he said in 2 Corinthians 4.10, he said, always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. Notice this, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Simply put, the more of me that dies, the more of he that lives. God wants to kill off you. God wants to kill off you. Again, not, not the part of you that he's created you to be, but the part of you that always get the old you. God wants to kill that off. God wants to kill off the flesh so that you become a reflection of Jesus in every way. God's objective in our lives or for our lives has always been to change us, to become more and more like Jesus, and he uses anything and everything to do it. He uses anything and everything to do it. Romans chapter 8 verse 28 says it best when it says, and we know that all things work together for the good, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. For all things work together for the good. God uses everything, all things. Kind of gives me a picture of a master chef. You know, master chef, they use everything. You know, like Thanksgiving time, you know, you eat the turkey down to the carcass, right? 
You know, you got a big old carcass there. And if you're just a regular person, you take the carcass and you want to throw it out. But, you know, if you're around grandma, grandma says, no, 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 don't throw that out. We can make some turkey soup out of that thing. And they put it in there, make a turkey broth. Use everything on it. That's, that's like God. God takes the stuff that we're ready to discard. God takes the stuff that we think, you know, there's no importance in that. There's no value in that. And God repurposes and God uses those things in order to transform us and conform us into the image of Jesus. And so we're like, God, you want to use that? And God's like, yeah, I can use it. God, why this? And God's like, but you don't know because I can repurpose that. I can do something with that. I know you see it in the form that it's currently in, but wait till I get my hands on it and transform it and help it to make you into who I've designed you to be, which is the image and likeness of Jesus. Amen. God wants us to be transformed until one day, according to 1 John chapter 3, verse number 2. Beloved, now we are children of God. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. The ultimate goal. We're in process right now. Every single one of us is in process. We're in the process of being conformed and transformed into the image of Jesus. God will use whatever he has to. Even the things that we think are bad. See, the the question is not, did it make me happy? The question is, did it conform me into the image of Jesus? Because there are certain things that make me happy that don't conform me into the image of Jesus. And that, therefore, is not a good thing. But there are certain things that make me sad, but in the end, conform me into the image of Jesus. So that thing that we thought was bad is actually very good. Are you with me? Amen. Am I going too fast? You want me to slow down? I just feel happy to be in church. Amen. And from our text, we see that one of the ways that God does this, transforms us and conforms us, uses everything, not causes everything. By the way, don't get it twisted. One of the ways that God conforms us into the image of Jesus is by giving us what we called last week, and this is where I want to kind of pick up from, we called last week close encounters of the God kind. These are moments in our life where God marks us and, and, and proves to us, bad word there, but you get my drift, right? Because God really doesn't have to prove anything. He's God. When you know that you're something, you never have to prove it to anybody. The only people that ever have to prove something is people that don't really know that who they are. When you know who you are, you're not out to impress anybody. You're just confident, this is why. And so, but God will give us these, these experiences with him where he marks us to prove to us or to convince us or to, a better way of saying it, to strengthen our faith so that we know that we know that we know that we know that God is real and that his word is real. And this is really what happened to the wise men. They were marked by the experience that they had with who they went to go see, who is Jesus. They said, who is this king that is supposed to be born king of the Jews? Who is this baby supposed to be born king of the Jews? And when they got to him, they had an epiphany and they realized that he wasn't just a Jewish king but he was the king of kings and that tra- that experience marked them and transformed them so much so that the scripture says mark chapter 2 verse number 2 they departed for their own country another way and we said surely this speaks of the road that they traveled they they clearly went 
another road, another highway, whatever it was, back to where they came from. But it also speaks of, I'm sure, the transformation that took place in them. They were marked by that experience. And I am positive when when we get to heaven, God will tell you how right I really was because the scripture doesn't say. But I'm positive that they were changed by that experience, that they had new goals and new aspirations and a new purpose and new values and new morals and all of those kind of things. Because the worst thing in the world is a Christian that ain't changed. It's actually quite nauseating, isn't it? Because Christians who ain't changed, who are constantly telling the world how they ought to change, kind of give the rest of us a bad name, don't they? And so God wants to change us. Close encounters of the God kind are what he uses, experiences, where we know that we know that we know that we know that God is real. And he uses these experiences to fuel our faith so that faith can become steadfast when it is put under fire. Because one of the things that we all know and will learn if we, have it, if we don't know it already about life is that our faith will be put under fire. Nobody's faith leaves here without being put under fire. And so these God experiences, they give us this, this fuel for our faith. They, they, they make our faith steadfast under fire. And there's all sorts of examples of this in the Bible. For instance, the one that I was reminded of when I was studying was the lame man carried by four friends to the house where Jesus was teaching. You remember it? The house where Jesus was teaching was packed out because that's the way God always wants his church packed out. Hello, virtual world. I'll see you in church next week or maybe even tomorrow. Maybe the Lord will convict you and you get off your blessed assurance and come to church tomorrow. Anyway. So they took them to the house where Jesus was taken. It was too packed for them to even get in. I can't wait to see church like that again one day. Too packed to not even get in. And you know what? I don't even want to see church like that on Easter and Christmas because those are fake crowds. Fake crowds full of phony Christians. Preaching real good tonight. I'm feeling something like that. Because people only come to church twice a year. What's that about? I'll go see a person I love twice a year. If I only saw my wife twice a year, I'd die. I'd be like, where is she? I want, honey, whatever I got to do to come see you, right? They took him to the house where Jesus was. And you remember what they did? They they lowered him down to Jesus, ripped up the roof, lowered him down. And you remember what Jesus said to him? He said, Matthew chapter, Mark chapter 2, verse number 11, arise, take up your bed, and go to your home. Always a very strange directive. I would have been, arise, get off your bed and go home. That's what I would have said. Wouldn't you have said that? Arise, take up your bed, and go home. Jesus said, take the thing that you've been lying on your entire life, take it home with you. Like, what is up with you, Jesus? Why? And I can picture him saying, no, Jesus, I don't want to take my bed. I want to take that mat. I never want to see that mat ever again in my life. I've laid on that mat. That mat represents every bit and every time of my life that I want to forget. I don't ever want to lose, lose uh, see that mat ever again in my life. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. Take it home and hang it above your mantle on your fireplace. 
Use it maybe as the, the place that you wipe your feet on when you come home. I mean, put it somewhere you could see it all the time. Why? Because that is the moment that I marked your life and I let you know that I was the miracle worker and you are going to need to remember that moment time and time and time and time again because your faith will come under fire. And you will have to look back and say, uh, no, 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 that's, that's who he is. I want to just encourage somebody right now. Maybe you're, you're in the process of Satan trying to sift you. And don't, don't look at people strange. Don't look at it like it might be the person sitting next to you because Satan tries to sift. You've got to be careful if you say that quick. He tries to sift everyone at certain times in our life. And I just want to encourage you, if, if you're here, if you're watching it, and that's you and your faith is under fire right now, I want you to intentionally right now, in your mind, right now, shut everything down, shut the noise off in your mind. And I want you to think back to a time in your life where you know that you know that you know that God is real from, a time where God marked you. And what I want you to do is I want you to begin to remember those details as best as you can. Remember every little detail and think about them in your, in your mind and in your heart. And then as you think about that, I want you to begin to use that as fuel to feed your faith so that you could fight off the assault that you're under right now. Because that's how it happens. Remember what David did? David walked into, onto the battlefield Nobody wanted to fight the giant. David said, I'll go fight the giant. They said, well, you got to go talk to Saul. He went to go talk to Saul. He said, Saul, I'll go. Saul kind of laughed at him a little bit. He said, you can't do that. He said, you know, you're a kid. He's a man of war ever since he was a kid. And do you remember what David did? He said, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Right now, you're, you're trying to destroy my faith in the God that I serve because you're you're trying to belittle who I am because anytime you belittle who you are, it doesn't just hurt you, it hurts your faith. That's why there are assaults against identity because it doesn't just hurt you, it hurts your faith. And so he's trying to belittle who David was. You're just a kid. You're just this. You're just that. And here's what David said. Here's what David did in that moment when his faith was under attack. He said, but your servant killed both a lion and a bear. And then David gave a little detail. He said that when the lion came and tried to take the lamb, listen to the detail. He said, I grabbed him by the beard. Could you imagine that? Grab a lion by the beard. He was remembering the details of the time. Why? Because you have to remember the details of when God marked you in times of doubt because the details of how God marked you and gave you an experience with him will give you the fuel that your faith needs to fight the giant that is ahead of you. He said, he said, your servant killed both a lion and a bear. And then notice what he said. He propelled forward, he says, and, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall, I love David, it was like smack talking. If you remember it, you'll start talking smack. You'll be like, and devil, you, <laughs> let me just tell you, you bony little fingered thing that you thought you'd come up into my crib and take my faith from me. Let me just remind you on what happened on this particular instance. I grabbed it by the beard. 
And the same God that caused me to have the strength and the power to grab that lion by the beard is the same God that will deliver this uncircumcised Philistine into my head because he defies the army of the living God. What did he do? He, he fueled his faith by remembering a time that he was, he was marked. Can I just tell you what David did? When David grabbed that lion by the beard and that, uh, that lion whimpered, David said, oh, my God. He was shocked. I remember a time. I digress. I can't digress too long because i got to get this done because next week we've got to start a new series. Anyway, I remember a time when, when my friend, he couldn't see in college without wearing glasses and great man of faith and power that I was. I told him, I said, I said, come on, let me pray for you. I prayed for my laid hands on him. I commanded his eyes to be open. And I took his glasses off his face. So go ahead and read that book now. He said, I can't see still. I said, the more are you going to see? I promise you, you're going to see. I just kind of went back thinking, man, God, how you let me look like a fool like that? I thought, you know, trying to be... Next day, I'm walking into economics class, Rutgers University, big giant building with, you know, staircase going up to the second floor. I walk into the building, and there's my friend standing at the top of the staircase. Frank! It's like, chill, bro. I don't know who that man is, you know. Frank, I could see without my glasses. He come running down. I said, what happened? He said, last night, I know what it was when I got back to my room. I don't recommend this, by the way. He said, I went back to my room, and I had been taking this medication. I don't know what it was. And I just felt like an urge to just get rid of the medication. So I just got rid of the medication, and I went over it, and I grabbed my book, and I opened it up. And from that moment forward, I could see perfectly. I said, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> see, when, when God marks you, it, it'll shock you. You'll be like, I don't believe that really worked. God will give you that experience where you know it's not you, but you know it was God every second, every minute of that experience. And it's a marking that you will remember for the rest of your life that you can fuel your faith with so that you could fight off the doubt. You remember the man born blind? You remember him in the Bible? John chapter number nine. And... Jesus healed him. He was born blind, and they try to say that he was blind because he sinned, you know, or his parents sinned, and he was being punished. And, you know, can I just say, it doesn't really matter what people say about you because God will do it anyway, even if they say this or if they say that or if they believe this. God, people do not have the last word over your destiny. God does. And so Jesus healed him anyway, and the Pharisees got really mad about this because he not only healed them, but he did it on the Sabbath day, and it kind of proved that he was God because nobody opens blind eyes unless they're God. And, and so they cornered the parents, and they cornered the, the guy in John chapter 9, verse number 16. Therefore, some of the Pharisees says, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Imagine, imagine see how silly religion is? Religion that's based on rules. You know, that where we think, you know, outward stuff is more important than what's happening inwardly. He said, well, this man can't be from God. He doesn't keep this Sabbath. 
And they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him because he opened your eyes? Give glory to God. Now, what they were simply saying is give glory to God by denouncing who he is. We know that this man is a sinner, they said. And here's what the blind man said. Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I know, though I was blind, now I see. (laughs) It's like, too late. You can't mess with me because he's already marked me. You can't tell me he doesn't have something that's extraordinary and out of this earth. You can't tell me he's just a normal man. He's already marked me, so you can't mess with me. I know he is the miracle worker, and there is nothing you can do about it now. He already got to me before you got to me. And then I love about this story. Read the story. They didn't like that. They said to him again, what, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I, I told you already and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciple? I like this guy's got some moxie now, right? He's like, oh, I can tell you, but I think you might come to Jesus. Then they reviled him and said, you are his disciple. Well, we are Moses' disciple. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we don't know where he's from. The man answered and said to them. Notice how they are trying to steal his faith. It's under siege. He says, why? This is a marvelous thing. That you do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone, and by the way, he was just newly saved, so his, his theology wasn't that good just yet. Because can I tell you something about God? God does hear sinners. Because there was a time when I was a sinner and I said, Jesus saved me. And guess what? He heard me. <laughs> Biggest sinner of all. You were a sinner too one day. You said, Jesus saved me. And guess what? Thank God he hears sinners. Because if he didn't hear sinners, then none of us in this building right now would be saved. He said, now we know that God does not hear sinners. But if anybody is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone has opened the eyes of one who has been born blind. If this man were not from God, he do he could do nothing. What was he saying? Too late. You can't mess with me. He's already marked me. There is something about these God experiences that give our faith the fuel that it needs. Never, never try to rob somebody of an experience with God. Part of the reason why it's important to allow the Holy Spirit space and services is because you never know who he wants to mark in a moment. I remember just a while ago, God gave me a word in service for somebody, a word of knowledge. And when I walked out of the service, as I was going this way, the person grabbed me and they were new. And they were crying and the husband was crying. They said, Pastor, Can you pray for us? Can you lay your hands on my wife? Because my wife is the one that has a tumor right underneath the left side of her ribcage, just like you said. Can you lay hands? And God marked them that day that the God of the universe would care enough about their situation to talk to them in that moment. But here's what I want you to see, and this is really what I want you to, what I want to get to, and then I'll be done, okay? Close encounters of the God kind change us. They transform us because they reroute our lives in the right direction. They reroute our lives in the right direction. The the wise men 
were rerouted by their experience. Ever been rerouted in life? Sometimes it's an inconvenience, isn't it? You're kind of in a rush, you know, and all of a sudden you hit traffic and the GPS reroutes you. And, or you're on a plane and, you know, for whatever reason you can't land at that airport. And so we're rerouting to another airport. And it's an inconvenience and it's horrible and you don't like it and it causes you to miss stuff and all that kind of stuff happens. But when God reroutes us, I found that it is often... Matter of fact, it's exclusively and only for our good because he has our best intentions in mind. And so God reroutes us because he wants to change us. And, and notice the wise men, they left on a different path. When it comes to life, it's really about the path that we're on. At the end of the day, there are really only two paths that you can ever be on in life. Many roads, but only two paths. The Bible breaks them down into what is called the wide road and the narrow road. One path that leads to destruction and one path that leads to life. Matthew chapter 7 verse 13. The highway to hell is broad. Its gate is wide and many there are who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult and only a few ever find it. By the way, here's what that means. What's popular is not always what's right. Matter of fact, I would go so far as to say from the scripture, usually what is popular in the world is wrong. Only two paths. Path to life, path to death, highway to hell, Highway to heaven. The broad path, the narrow path. The right path, the wrong path. The life path, the destruction path. Go back to Herod or leave another way. The path we take either leads us to become more like Christ or pulls us away from becoming like the Christ that we were created to be like. It either hardens us or helps us, desensitizes us or disinfects us, infects us or improves us, makes us or breaks us. Life is about the path. The famous poem by Robert Frost, Two Roads Diverged in a Wood. And I, I took the one less traveled by and it has made all the difference. Not always the case though. We don't always choose the one that's less traveled on, do we? Matter of fact, We have problems choosing the right path often in life. Our proclivity is to take the broad road. Our proclivity is to take the wrong path. But life is all about the path. You could say that most people have a path problem that needs to be solved. And if they could ever get on the right path, they could wind up at the right place, which is conformed and transformed into the image of Jesus. And we know that the path is the most important thing when it comes to hiking or biking or driving or going by plane. But somehow in life, we don't realize the importance of the path. And in life, we feel like good intention and not right direction is the secret to life. And so we have all these great intentions, but we never get on the right path. And then we become disillusioned when we don't get what we thought we wanted because we thought the intention was going to get us what we wanted. And we didn't realize the path is really what gets you what you want. And so, for example, we want to retire at age 55 and be wealthy, but we don't start saving for retirement until we're 50. And we're like, I can't believe it. 
I don't know why these other people, they get to retire at 55. Here I am just slaving away. Stop drinking Starbucks and put it into a Roth IRA from the time you're 20 and you'll be wealthy by the time you're 55. Choices. Now, if you could do both, fine. Drink your Starbucks all you want. Not intention. We want to be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, a Fortune 100 company. We don't even want to get an education. We want to have a great marriage, but we cut off communication. We want our kids to respect us, but we cheat on their mother or father. And then we get to a point in life where we look back and we're disillusioned because we didn't get what we wanted to. And we get envious and jealous of everybody else who's got what we want. And we're like, oh, life is not fair. No, it's not intention. It's direction that gets you to the place that you want to go. There's a power in the path that you are on. Direction, not good intention, determines destination. And here's the thing about us. We can see the wrong path other people are on a mile away. But we are blind when it comes to the path that we're on. Have you ever noticed this about us? And we got all sorts of things to say about people who are on the wrong path. By the way, don't judge a person because of the path that they're on. Because all of us get on the wrong path sometimes in life. And but for the grace of God, we would have stayed on that path a lot longer than we should have. And so we come to a portion of scripture. It's a, it's a fun portion of scripture, actually. Proverbs chapter number 7. And Solomon, who's supposed to be, and I've got to ask God about this. I haven't figured this one out, Pastor Brandon. The wisest man that ever lived, 700 wives and concubines. Sounds pretty stupid to me. I've got to ask God about this. I haven't, I haven't cracked that nut just yet. I haven't, I haven't found the theological balance in that. And so Solomon, he's watching from his palace window as this young man is traveling down a path that Solomon knows is going to end up in the wrong place. And he kind of narrates it, right? And, and you could read this. It's in the Proverbs chapter number 7. It's kind of like the parent watching the kid go on the wrong way, but can't get through to the kid. Or like the person watching two cars collide at the intersection and can't stop it. Or like if you were watching the Super Bowl last week, watching the, the receiver come over the middle and seeing the DB come in and get ready to pop him, and you know, oh, throw the ball, but you can't stop it because you just can't. Could see the wrong path. And Solomon narrates, he says, At the window of my house, I looked out through a lattice, and I saw amongst the simple. I noticed among the young men a youth who lacked judgment. Young people, I love y'all. You lack judgment. How do I know you lack judgment? Because when I was your age, I lacked it too. And, and some of you are smarter than the other ones. Some of you have good judgment for your age. But I guarantee you, you don't have as good a judgment as your parent who is walking with the Lord. Now, a parent who's not walking with the Lord, you might have better judgment then in some ways. He said, I noticed among the young men a youth who lacked judgment. He was going down the street near, near, he was going down the street near her corner, walking along in the direction of her house at twilight as the day was fading, as the dark of night was setting in. Then out came a woman to meet him dressed like a prostitute with crafty intent. 
Now, from this young man's perspective, this was a great path. From this young man's perspective, he was thinking, man, I got this stuff. She couldn't even wait for me to make the first move. She had to come and practically beg me. I mean, I got what it takes. And you know what he's hearing in his mind? He's hearing the words to that song. Get your motor running. Head out on the highway, looking for adventure. Oh, whatever comes my way. He's hearing that in his mind right now. He's saying this is a great path. And Solomon, he's he's watching from the window. He's hearing a different song. He's hearing Donna, 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 Donna. That was the Jaws theme, by the way. I know it wasn't that good. He's hearing a totally different sound. Two people, one in the path, can't see the path that he's on, is the wrong path. The other one, who's been on a wrong path a lot of times in his life, is looking, and he knows exactly where this is headed. And watch this. Look how the enemy tries to tempt us down the wrong path. Proverbs chapter 7, verse 14. She says, I have fellowship offerings at home. Today I fulfilled my vows. So I came out to meet you. I looked for you and I have found you. And in my Bible, there's an exclamation point. I looked for you and I found you. Look at you, you stud of a man. You are exactly who I... No, ain't nobody as handsome as you. I have covered my bed with colored linens from Egypt. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh Aloes and cinnamon, come, let us drink deep of love till morning. I'm getting, I'm almost blushing right now. Let's enjoy ourselves with love. There's a young man walking down the street. Can I, I don't know how real I could be tonight. And a woman comes out of nowhere and offers him free sex. He's like, get your motor running. He thinks, This is amazing. And notice, my husband's not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took his purse filled with money, and he will not be home till full moon. Proverbs chapter 7, with persuasive, verse number 21, with persuasive words, she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. All at once, he followed her. Solomon goes on to say, here's how this is going to go down. It's like an ox going to the slaughter. He said, I see exactly where this thing is going. He says, it's like a deer stepping into a noose. He said, it's like an arrow piercing somebody's liver. It's like a bird darting into a snare. Verse 24. Now then, my son Solomon talks, and he says, pay attention to what I'm about to say. Do not let your heart turn to her ways or stray into her paths. Many are the victims she has brought down. Her slain are the mighty. Her house is a highway to the grave, leading down to the chambers of death. Here's what Solomon said. There's power in the path. The path that you take can either make or break your life. Don't get on the wrong path. But here's the thing about us chronically human people. We get on the wrong path a lot of times. And here's what is even harder about seeing being on the wrong path is when you finally do see it, it's hard to get off. 
Anybody ever been on the wrong path and you want to get off, but something's keeping you there? Don't look at me in that tone of voice like you never had this experience in your life. If you had, then you really never lived any life because I've been in this place. God, I know this is wrong, but I've gone too far. I said too much. I can't turn. What are they going to think of me now? God, it's going to look like I'm a fool. And God, I, 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 how am I going to get off this path? It's even harder. Once you see it, to get off the path. But here's what I love about God. Is God is not like Solomon. He doesn't just watch and narrate. Tell those people to shut up. That's called gossiping. And Christians have perfected the art of watching and narrating. What's going on in somebody else's life? God doesn't watch and narrate. You know what God does when we are on the wrong path? God steps onto the wrong path. God doesn't just step onto the right path. God steps onto the wrong path. And he becomes a stop sign in the middle of the wrong path to redirect our lives. Because he knows that that path is going to turn us into a person that he has never created us to be. So even on the path, even on the highway to hell, God shows up and he says, reroute. Turn in the opposite direction. I love you too much to let you go down this path. God becomes that stop sign. David said it this way. He said, even if I make my bed in hell, you are there. In other words, doesn't matter how far I've gone. Doesn't matter how bad it looks. God is going to step onto the path. He is going to mark you. He is going to turn you in the right direction because he loves you that much. That's how much he loves you. Now watch this, watch this, watch this. Pastor, what do I, what do I need to do to get one of these kind of experiences with God? Do I pray more, Pastor? Pray a lot. That's wonderful. I love praying. Pastor, do I do I worship more? Yep, you could do that too. Pastor, do I do I come to church on a regular basis? Some of you have been at home this whole time. You ain't had nothing happen to you now. I'm just playing. Because all those those things are wonderful. Truth of the matter is, they're really not linked to God experiences the way that we think they are. Say, Pastor, what do you mean? You're blowing my theology now. Apostle Paul was on his way to commit murder when he had one of these experiences. Moses was on the backside of a mountain having just committed murder and he ran from God. And he had one of these experiences. Zacchaeus was ripping people off as a tax collector up in a tree and he had one of this one of these experiences. Gideon was hiding behind a wine press and he had one of these experiences. The woman at the well who had been married six times to different people or five times and her current husband was was her was her sixth man but not her husband and Jesus was her seventh man. Some of y'all need a seventh man right now. She was she was she was just living life on the wrong path 
And God gave her one of those experiences. The woman caught in adultery was committing adultery when she had one of those experiences. I just love how good God is. Because God is so anti-religion. God is so anti all these things that we say need to happen. God loves us with an everlasting and undying love. And so even in the midst of all of those things, God will step onto the wrong path. He will step onto the highway that leads to hell to give us an experience with him to turn us in the right direction because God will never, ever, ever, ever give up on you. He will step into your Egypt and take you by the hand into your promised land. That's who God 